Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. We are, we, are, we are talking about Barnabas because I'm convinced that one of the greatest needs in missions today is for people who will encourage those who are doing difficult work and, um, and people who will stand behind them. In my own life, uh, I can tell you many, many encouragers, and many of them were lay people. These are people who can help us along uh, when we are discouraged. Uh, I remember when I was in theological college, away from my country, uh, there were some lay people whose home became like my home, and they helped me so much uh, in, the, in, in, in the work that I, I was doing uh, and, and in my studies. Uh, so uh, this is a, uh, something that all of us can do. Uh, the first time we encounter Barnabas, uh, we, are, we are told, uh, we are first of course given his name in chapter 4 and verse 36, we are told that uh, he was given the name uh, 4 and verse 36 says, uh, uh, Just thus Joseph, who was also called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, uh, a native of uh, Cyprus. Now, uh, uh, perhaps a son of encouragement may not be the best word that was uh, the best way to translate that. Barnabas probably means uh, son, prof, uh, from, from the word Nabi, which is a prophet. Uh, so, uh, so he's the son of a prophet, uh, which probably means, you know, in the, in the, in the Greek, there's this word called paraklesis, um, which can mean encouragement or exhortation, uh, both words, and you have to decide on the context uh, to see which word is more appropriate. I think here it's more uh, exhortation that is intended. Uh, so Barnabas was the son of exhortation, the son of the prophets. Um, and so um, that, that's how we first encounter him. And then in verse 36 and 37, we are told that he gave up his land and, um, and, uh, and he sold the land and um, uh, gave, the, gave it to the church. He's given us a good example of this principle of sharing that they found in the church. Later we have a bad example. Uh, immediately after that in Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, for the lack of time, I'm not going to spend time on this particular point. But let me say that um, if you want to be someone who's encouraging others, one of the keys is that our agenda is the agenda of the kingdom, not our own agenda. And, and our, uh, we have to give up our rights uh, to personal privilege uh, for time maybe, uh, and uh, for, for um, our possessions maybe, but whatever it is, as we give up that, we become more open to being a blessing to people. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that much, uh, but uh, I think there's a great need today. I was told that in John Stott's, uh, uh, the, the funeral service, uh, uh, Chris Wright had really challenged the people and said that leaders today are selfish, they are following their agenda and reminded them about John Stott, a man who, who just followed God's agenda and was totally obedient. And I think that's very important. Um, the, a Christian really <clears throat> uh, gets up every morning and very positively, not negatively, says, what do you want me to surrender today? Because the Bible says our thoughts are not God's thoughts and our ways are not God's ways. If that is the case, then uh, very often we are going to think differently to God's way. So we tell the Lord, Lord, my way is not your way. Please tell me, what do you want me to surrender today? And let me tell you that it's a joyous life. Because when you surrender to God, you're surrendering to the surest source of security. And so because of that, you can go through life with joy. So, um, so that, that's, that, that's the first uh, thing. He surrendered rights, uh, his rights and privileges. Uh, the, the next time we meet him is in chapter 9 and verse 27. Paul has been converted, and after a short ministry in Damascus, he's sent away. We don't know where he went, 
but later he goes to Jerusalem. Now people looking at uh, Galatians and all of that uh, have felt that he went to Jerusalem about three years after his conversion. He goes to Jerusalem. It must have been an emotionally stirring time. Paul was a patriot. He loved his people. This is the country where, this is the town where he had studied, where he had shone brilliantly, where he had climbed to the top in a, in a very rapid way. This was his place of success. And now he was coming and he knew that the Jewish people would shun him. But he had a new family, the Christian family. And there was the question, would they accept him? Verse 26 is a very sad verse. He attempted to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him. For they did not believe he was a disciple. Was he a spy? This was the famous method of spies to infiltrate the ranks by faking commitment. It happens all the time. It used to happen in Sri Lanka. Uh, and, um, and so they didn't believe him. How many bright young Christians suffer this fate? They are on fire for God. They are ready to bring reform in the church and to change the world. They don't, um, they don't have much wisdom. <laughs> And they make a lot of mistakes, but they have zeal. And, uh, and they're willing to do that. And the church is afraid because they are, what they're proposing is too much of a threat to what is existing. So verse 26 is a very gloomy passage. But uh, verse 27 starts with that glorious word, but. You get this very often in the Bible. But. Uh, verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Uh, he took the potential, the possible spy, right into the inner circle. We are told the disciples were ashamed, afraid to accept him. Now Barnabas takes him to the apostles. If he was a spy, this was the situation he would have been looking for. Uh, it would have been more than what he had dreamed possible. Uh, so, uh, if he was a spy. So, Barnabas took the risk of trusting Paul. Risk-taking is a key to the ministry of encouragement. Risk-taking entrepreneurs are, given a high, are considered a high value in, in the corporate world today. And, um, and in Christianity, because Christianity is the religion of love, our risk-taking has to do with people, loving people. That is Christian risk-taking. We love people, and that is the great end of Christianity. So we believe people and back them. Many great people were taken on by an older Christian during their younger days, and that older Christian saved them from themselves. You know, um, Hudson Taylor is a good example. Uh, after a short time in, in China, uh, his mission wrote to say that they are, they are sorry, they cannot help him anymore. Uh, and he had, they had no money to send. His fiance wrote to him and said, I'm very sorry, I don't think I love you anymore, and I can't get married to you. The missionaries shunned him because he was trying to take on all these Chinese customs and dress like a Chinese and all. They were a bit embarrassed by him. The British envoy refused to allow him to do any ministry in the area under his influence. So he, it was a tough time for him. He wrote to his mother and he said, um, my heart is sad, sad, sad. I don't know what to do. Around that time, an older Scottish missionary called William Burns took him under his wing and traveled with him. And his biographer, J.C. Pollock, says, that William Burns saved Hudson Taylor from Hudson Taylor, from himself. Because otherwise he could have become an eccentric radical whom no one really took seriously. And that's what happens very often to creative, young, prophetic type people. They are rejected by the church and they become eccentric radicals 
or they join people who will accept them, who very often are not very uh, appropriate. You know, in youth ministry, there is something that, that you have to live with. Um, I tell our staff, you know, uh, you're going to make mistakes, especially our volunteers. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to bring a lot of shame to Youth for Christ uh, because uh, they go to these churches and try to change the church overnight and, and do all these terrible things. And I always tell them, that's something that we can handle. Doesn't matter the shame to our ministry. If these people have zeal, let's, let's uh, minister to them and encourage them. That is one of the occupational hazards of youth ministry. The young people often bring shame to the leaders, but those same people who bring shame may one day become great Christian leaders. Uh, so what I tell our people whenever I go to our centers, we can handle people who make mistakes. The one thing we can't handle people is people who tell lies, because those people can't be helped, uh, and they can't be helped to change from their wrong. So if we see a heart for God and a desire to serve God, we'll take the risk of supporting these people. Some of them will make it, and they will make us great. Many won't make it. Some may even bring shame and great pain to us. Some will return much later. And I've seen that in, in Youth for Christ, people who have left us and who've been, we've been so sad, and then I go to preach, and they come and say, you remember who I am, <laughs> you know? And uh, I was telling our staff uh, when I gave my farewell address after I stepped down from my leadership, one of the things I look forward to is going to heaven. And when I go to heaven, uh, I'm going to see this fellow and say, you made it here. How did you come here? You know, and, and the joy, the tremendous joy of seeing these people whom we least expected to make it, who have come, who the seed was implanted. They went away and then they came back to God and they are living for God. So those who make it someday make the ministry worthwhile. Then the second part of verse 27, brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Christ. Very interesting. He has become the public relations officer of Saul. You know, Barnabas explained the story of Saul in some detail. You know, you talk about the things that excite you. And an encourager is excited by the stories of others. And when an encourager hears an encouraging story, they'll tell other people about it. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes I go to these conferences and people uh, just talk only about, you know, and when you're a speaker, you know, they come and it's very, it's a huge strain because you have to listen to these people, you can't be rude, but they will just keep talking and talking and talking about all the work they do. Some of it is extremely exciting, but after some time it gets a little difficult. Um, what a refreshing thing when you hear people talking about somebody else and what those people are doing. Uh, are doing. You're excited over God's grace to others, and when you are excited, you will talk about it. Now, you see a reversal here. We, we belong to an upside-down kingdom. In the world, junior people act as public relations officers for senior people. That's the normal pattern. In the kingdom of God, senior people are the public relations officers for the junior people. Paul, of course, caught this vision. And uh, often his letters, he mentions as co-authors other less prominent people like Timothy, Silvanus or Silas, and Sosthenes. Again, the upside-down kingdom. In the world, famous people get others to write books and put their name as the author. And sometimes if they have a conscience, they may say, with so-and-so, you know. But sometimes they don't do that either. In the kingdom... Famous people use their writings to give prominence to other people. And then you hear his glowing tributes of people like Timothy and Titus in 2 Corinthians, Philippians. And then you, you get, come to the book of Romans, the great doctrine book. And you come to the last chapter, 
And it's all about unknown people, most of them totally unknown, and what they have done. There are greetings to 26 people who are named and other unnamed groups, and greetings from eight people, so that 34 people are named in this doctrine book at the end of the book. It seems to be very um, boring, you know, reading all these names. But to me, it's one of the most exciting chapters in the Bible to see this famous man spending all this time, space, talking about unknown people and usually saying something uh, commendatory about these people. So, public relations officers for others. Then we come to chapter 11. Uh, I talked about this great step that took place, unknown pioneers, whose names are not mentioned, um, and we are at verse 23. Um, they have started a church among the Gentiles, and, um, and the church in Jerusalem must have been very concerned. What is this that has happened? Let's go and let's send somebody uh, to go and check about it. And what a good choice they made. They sent Barnabas. And... Um, uh, so those who started this church had no credentials, so they had to send somebody with credentials to give some sort of backing, some sort of uh, uh, authority uh, to this work, recognition to this work. And we are told in verse 23, and when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. He saw the grace of God and he was glad. You know, um, I'm a left-hander, and whenever I see somebody writing with the left hand, immediately I recognize it. Lefties recognize lefties. And in the same way, people for whom grace is primary recognize grace when they encounter it, and they are gladdened. Actually, people who look at life with grace-colored vision are joyous people. Because when you realize, when you look at life and you realize, my goodness, I didn't deserve anything. But see what he's done for me. Look at the way he's blessed me. And, and, and when, when, however people, bad people are, we know that God is good. And that he is good to me. So however bad people are, our approach to life is one of joy. Because God's greatness, God's love is greater than all the unkindness of people. And so when people go with this joy of the Lord and they see grace, then they rejoice at what they see. Now, I must, it must have been such an encouragement for this young church to see this distinguished leader of the Jerusalem church coming and being so happy when he saw them. And I think um, expressing our joy over us, over others, is a very important aspect of Christianity. Actually, um, th th that is one of the disciplines of Christianity. We, 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 when we rejoice in God, we, we, we express it because that is what completes the joy. It completes the circle. You know, uh, when a person uh, passes an exam, he doesn't go into the room, close the door, and you know, say, I passed, I passed, I passed. You know, he goes and tells somebody. He expresses his joy. And, and, and so Jer uh, Barnabas would have expressed his joy. And, uh, and um, um, you know, and, and of course, that's the beautiful thing about God regarding us too. The Lord your God in the midst of you is mighty. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will shout over you with songs of joy. You know, uh, he will exult over you with shouts of joy. There are different, different translations of that. Um, so God is shouting at us because he's thrilled. You know, like how you go for a concert. And uh, your little child is taking plath. And when the, when the girl has done a good job, uh, you want to shout out, that's my girl, you know. And God is looking us, at us and saying, that's my boy, that's my girl. And when you are thrilled by that, you want to do that to others also. When God did this to me, you know, now I want to do it to other people also. There may have been many weaknesses there. But he focused on grace. And that is the basic response. Um, so, so uh, yeah, he focused on grace. And the basic response to grace is faith. We believe 
in the, on the one hand is joy and on the other hand is faith. So both things are found here. Actually, later on we are told that he was a man, a good man, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. This is in verse 24. So we look at faith here. When you realize the grace and how great it is, you begin to look at people through the eyes of grace. And you realize the possibilities of grace. People of faith can realize what God can do in another person's life. And they believe that God can do it. And they work towards that end. Later Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 7, Love believes all things. Now he's not talking about being gullible um, and believing all the lies that people tell about us, about themselves or about somebody else. What he means is we believe in what God, what grace can do. And with that belief, we act in, in keeping with that belief. Uh, when you believe in su such people, you know, you begin to see things that they can do. You see them with, through the eyes of hope. Barnabas, of course, did this with Mark. He saw beyond the weaknesses to the possibilities of grace. And, um, um, and let me say that without that, you'll never nurture greatness. Uh, some leaders look down on their people. Uh, they say, oh, they are uneducated. They are not capable. They are below our level. That message somehow gets communicated to them. And they don't rise to what God can bring them to become unless they can escape from this terrible message that people are giving them. To nurture greatness, you must believe in the possibility of greatness in these people. Again, in my final talk to my staff, to our staff, one of the things I said was, you are my heroes. Then I said, there are some times that when you behave in a certain way, I think to myself, why is this idiotic idiot behaving like an idiot? You know, uh, I, that's how I, what I think. But then grace takes over and you begin to realize, yes, he's made a big mistake, but God can change him. And you begin to look at, their, at them through the eyes of grace. Uh, Paul did this with Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1.18, Timothy was a timid person. And he says, um, I, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy. A strong word. It's a, it's a military term. I'm giving you this charge, Timothy. My child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. He believes in some prophecies that said that Barnabas will become that, that Timothy will become this kind of person. And using that, he works towards that end by giving him this charge. You know, and so we, uh, and he tells Timothy, this is my hope for you. And with that hope, I'm giving you these things. So we see beyond weaknesses to the possibilities of grace. Um, then, uh, now let me say that if you do not, if you look down, on somebody, if you look down on your spouse, um, you will never help that spouse, that child, that friend to climb to the great things that God has for that person. You can't be an encourager. And also, you're not a biblical Christian because in Philippians 2 3, it says that in humility, we must count others better than ourselves. Now, Paul wasn't asking to act. Oh, yeah, 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 you're better than me. You're better than me. No, that's not what he was saying. Everyone has something they are better than us in. Everyone has something that they are better than. And so, but, but, but they are not a threat to us because we have been lifted by grace. And, and though we don't deserve it, we are thrilled that God has lifted us up and we feel lifted up. Now we have the strength to lift up others. Now we have a new ambition, not to show how great we are, but to lift others up and show how great they are. In Romans 12, 10, we are given the Christian version of competition. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's the Christian version of competition. We compete with people to show honor to them. So we complete 
yes, we, uh, yeah. Uh, then we come to verse 23. Uh, we come back to verse 23. Uh, he was glad and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord. Now this is the mission of the encourager. To remain faithful to God with steadfast purpose. The, the, the language here suggests clinging to God. And his ways. Um, this is what we desire more than anything else for anybody. You know, we have staff uh, who are working in very dangerous areas. Uh, and yesterday I talked about a staffer who was killed. So, so it, it, during the war, uh, you know, we used to pray for their protection. We used to pray for the programs, the job they do. But more than anything else, the prayer is, Oh God, protect them spiritually. Help them to be close to you. Keep them, uh, help them not to neglect their devotions. Help them to overcome temptation. Help them to give proper time to their spouses and to their children. Oh God, protect them and keep them close to you. John and Paul demonstrate this desire. John says in 3 John and verse 4, the third epistle to John and verse 4, I have no greater joy than this than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That is the great joy. Paul says in Acts 11:28, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? He was yearning for them to go on with Christ. Uh, people have asked me what I will miss most now that I am no longer national director of our ministry. And I, told, I, and I tell them, what I miss most is going to be the privilege of being worried about our staff. You know, uh, just the, the, the yearning to see them doing well. Well, I don't think that goes, or, goes away. Uh, but uh, now, now much of that is going to be worn by somebody else. Uh, and so... Um, uh, Yearning for them. Faithfulness. Uh, to, uh, now, now, faithfulness to tasks assigned springs from walking close to God. You know, we know we, we, people need to do their jobs well. They need to be good family people. Uh, they need to, have, to, be, uh, to be supervised. We need job descriptions. We need reports of our work. Because those things help them to be faithful. But... Uh, and they describe the details of faithfulness. But the heart of faithfulness is clinging to God. That's the heart of faithfulness. Um, the heart, uh, and uh, out of that comes faithfulness to your job. Because if you are faithful to God, you will do your job properly. Uh, so so he, th that's what he says. Then in verse 24, we are given the character of an encourager. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now, um, the NIV drops the word because um, and uh, or for. Uh, the, it, it comes in the ESV, for. Uh, this is the word that means for or that. Uh, sorry, it's, it's the word that, that means because. Uh, but the ESV translates it as, uh, um, as uh, for. Um, he succeeded in encouraging these people because he was a good man, full of faith, and the Holy Spirit. Good man. What does that mean? Paul ranks goodness above righteousness in Romans 5, 7. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good man, one would even dare to die. This was a quality that inspires loyalty and commitment. This word is used in Matthew 20 to 15 with the meaning of generosity. And that was clearly one of Barnabas' qualities. Uh, in Luke 8 and 15, in the parable of the sower, sower this word is described uh, as the good soil. The good soil are those with an honest and good heart. An honest and good heart. So when you t say that Barnabas was a good man, you're saying 
This is someone with true Christian character. Has, God has got through to all of him. He's a true Christian. You know, today, if you share weaknesses with some people, um, that a good man won't gossip about it. Uh, if you point a fault, fault in that, point out a fault in, that, in a good man, the good man won't take revenge over you. He won't use you to fulfill his aims in a way that is harmful to you. He won't break principles to achieve his end. His ends. A good man doesn't believe in politicking, in underhand methods, in cutting others down to go forward. He has an agenda, or she has an agenda. They want to go somewhere, but they won't go there by cutting, taking shortcuts, by abusing others, by exploiting others, by lying, by breaking God rules, God's rules. Today there's a huge problem. People can't trust leaders. I remember this for the first time about uh, 15 years ago. We had a crisis in our ministry and some of our volunteers were very upset with the leadership. So I met with the leadership, with, with these volunteers, and I tried to explain what, what had happened. And in the middle of this conversation, I realized they don't believe what I'm saying. They think I'm lying. And I realized they have got used to hearing leaders tell lies. So that when I speak, they think I am also lying. You know, when I speak about community a lot in Sri Lanka, I tell people, pastors especially, share, let somebody know your weaknesses. Be spiritually accountable to somebody. Uh, or if you disagree with your supervisor and have a problem, just go and tell that person. Do it respectfully, but go and tell that. And almost always, the answer I get is impossible. We can't trust people. We have done it, and we have got hurt. These people, uh, so we can't trust people. What a shame. What a shame on us who bear the name of Christ. The Bible says that we have seen the glory of God. Our eyes are fixed on things above, as Colossians 3, 1 to 8 explains. How much, now, such small behavior is below our dignity. We believe in the greatness of God. People are attacking us. We refuse to hit back. We will exp uh, express our response with kindness or by turning the other cheek. Why? Because we believe God. People may laugh at us. They may think we are fools. They may think that we will never get anywhere using these methods that we are unwise and not street smart uh, in the way we are acting. It is difficult in today's world not to take shortcuts. For a time we look like a fool, but finally God is going to be honored. And that's what we want, God to be honored through our lives. We can achieve our aims by taking shortcuts in the church. We will go up in the ecclesiastical ladder but the kingdom of God has had a setback because we have gone up in the ecclesiastical ladder. And God forbid that what he says, Jesus says in Matthew 6, they have their reward. You know, when you live for this world, you have your reward. In one place he says, you have your reward in full. What he was saying is, you get your reward on earth and you forfeit it in heaven. Oh, may God give us such a desire to please him that people will look at us and say, he's a good man or a good woman. Then we are told that he was full of the Holy Spirit. Now, um, fullness of the Spirit is used in two ways in the book of Acts. Uh, sometimes it's used in terms of fullness for an assignment. In Acts 4.8, for example, when Peter is defending uh, the gospel before uh, the Sanhedrin, we are told that Peter, filled with the Spirit, spoke. In Acts 13 and verse 9, we are told that Paul was rebuking Elymas, you remember, and pronounced him blind uh, in, in Cyprus. 
There, Paul, filled with the Spirit, rebuked Elimus. So that is what we call like anointing. You know, it's for a special task. The other way uh, fullness of the Spirit is used in, um, in Acts is to describe the character of a person. For example, in, in chapter 6 and verse 3, the seven who were appointed to serve tables needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then uh, in this list, Stephen is particularly singled out as one who was filled with the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 5.18, uh, Paul commands all Christians to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It is a quality that should be for all. But the fact that Paul gives this command suggests that not all Christians are experiencing this fullness. It is indispensable, of course, for a leader. And, um, and here, uh, Paul, uh, Barnabas is described as a person who is filled with the Spirit. When people saw him, they saw Jesus. They saw the character of Jesus. At, um, there was a great um, Congress on Evangelism in the 1966 or so in a place in Berlin. Uh, and um, it was organized by Billy Graham. And it was a, like a precursor to the great Lausanne conference that came in 74. And the last talk of that conference was given by Billy Graham. It was called Stains on the Altar. And a missionary who was in Sri Lanka who went for that um, called us and got us young people. We were all young people at that time. Got us to listen to this final message that was given by Billy Graham. He closed his message by telling the story of the man who later I found, on I found was the founder of the seminary where I studied. Asbury Seminary. Henry Clay Morrison was his name. He was a world-famous preacher in his time, brilliant preacher. And he was working, he was a farm boy. And he was working by the corn in, in the fields. Uh, and while he was working, a Methodist preacher, they used to go on horseback, passed him on the road. And he says that when he saw this man going, he sensed the presence of God. And the influence of that life made him to kneel down right by those corn, uh, whatever, trees or foof, whatever they are called. Got him to kneel down and give his life to Christ. After giving this story, Billy Graham said, Oh God, Make me a holy man, a holy man. I still remember listening to one of the greatest minds in the, in the church ever produced in the 20th century, in my opinion, a man called Stephen Neal. And, um, and we asked him, what is the greatest need in missions today? And he said, it's holy people. People who show the nature of Christ. And actually, when you do personal ministry, when you start encouraging others, you find that this is a great incentive to holiness, uh, to pursuing um, the, the fullness of God's spirit. Because you can't act on behalf of God, and you can't lead others to God if you're not walking close to God. We are pushed to get our act together because others are looking to us for leadership. Um, I... I over the years, I've been discipling young Christian staff, uh, Youth for Christ staff, and uh, sometimes they come to me and um, they confess, you know, some of the temptations they are having. And I realize, man, I'm struggling with the same thing. I better get my act together. <laughs> you know, I can't be helping this fellow if I continue to fail in the same area. Um, Robert Murray McChain, I think you know him. He was from Scotland, a Presbyterian. Uh, he, um, he died when he was, I think, 29 years old, but had a great influence upon the people. And he once said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. That is the greatest need that our people have. You know, sometimes we blame our church people, this and this and this. We blame them and say, if they were only that. Well, I think there is good reason to blaming people. But our primary focus should be, I want to be a holy man. Or I want to be a holy woman. 
so that people who see me may be encouraged to walk close to God. Then we are told he's full of faith. I talked about that. Uh, but let me just say that without faith in what God can do, you can't persevere in the ministry of encouragement because you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be hurt. You're going to be tempted to be very angry. And when you're, when you're disappointed like that, the first thought that comes to you is, I'll never trust people again after what they did to me. But the Bible says that the biggest sinner can become the greatest saint. And we believe that and we persevere. You know, in my life, one of the greatest battles I've had has been the battle with anger. No, not getting angry at people uh, and expressing it, but just angry about the way people have treated me. Angry about the way they have not kept the faith that we had in them. And, and the, but, but I'm always challenged that the Bible is still true. God can turn this thing that somebody did to me into something good. God will turn it unless I disobey. And God can do the impossible. He can make a saint into a sinner. So we have faith. Then, uh, verse 14, uh, chapter 24, uh, sorry, chapter 11 and verse 24. Uh, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Evangelistic effectiveness. The coming of the encourager does not, does not reduce evangelistic fervor. Barnabas and Saul had a teaching ministry, we are told in verse 26, uh, that uh, they, had, uh, uh, they, they taught a great number of people. Uh, for a year, they met with the church and taught a great number of people. So they had a teaching ministry. But that doesn't reduce evangelistic zeal. You know, there is this strange idea among some people that an, uh, a teacher is more superior to an evangelist. You know, evangelists are simpletons who come and give the simple gospel, and then you have to have the sophisticated teacher to come and uh, strengthen your, your faith. There is nothing in the Bible about that. All teaching must result in evangelism. Teaching gets people into the word, and the word pulsates with the theme that people need the Lord. And so the teacher coming didn't take away the fervor of evangelistic zeal that they had. Well, after, uh, after uh, Barnabas was there, uh, he, he realized that he couldn't handle this alone. So verse 25 says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Um, now, the word translated look for uh, is, uh, is the word that means to try to locate by search, to search for someone. It's, uh, uh, you know, Paul had been away now for maybe 10 years, had elapsed since Paul left Jerusalem, possibly, and, uh, and went to Tarsus. So they didn't know where he was, probably. Barnabas didn't know. Uh, in the papyri, um, the, the, this word was used for searching for criminals and fugitives and runaway slaves. So he, was, he had to search. And he had to be motivated to do this kind of search. He had to, for one thing, he had to walk 100 miles. You know? uh, he had to walk, uh, and that was a major uh, undertaking. Then he had to find where he was. But... He, made all the, he took all this trouble to get an extremely talented person as a colleague. He must have been highly motivated to do that. Soon, Saul is going to overtake Barnabas in terms of prominence. But encouragers are not threatened by capable people. Some people have hard, hard-working junior assistants and few or no senior people to work with them. Capable people are a threat to them. So those who, uh, and, and these other people, the younger people sense this, they get frustrated, and very often they will leave. Some lever, leaders even don't like people to go and hear good speakers because they fear that they might go down in the esteem of their own people. And they are upset when they hear speakers praised because there's a threat to their position. Uh, 
when we concentrate on honoring others and Christ, it's no problem to us. Because an ambition is to outdo one another in showing honor, as Romans 12.10 says. Um, and, uh, and so God will honor us in our time. Don't worry. You know, we will spend time honoring others. Don't worry. 1 Samuel 3.20 Those who honor me, I will honor. And it's so much better to get our honor up there because that's forever and ever. This honor, you know, people forget so soon. <laughs> and and so, so much better to get our honor up there. Then we come to chapter 13. The church has grown and... Um, and what happens is that um, in, in chapter two and verse, uh, chapter thirteen and verse two and three, the Bible, uh, the, the the Holy Spirit says, "Set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them." Now, uh, and after fasting and praying, they send him. Now, he, they must have been happily settling down in Antioch. There's a growing church, lots more to do in Antioch. Many people have would have thought that they are going to have a long stint in Antioch. But while they are worshipping and fasting, the Holy Spirit says, set apart Barnabas. And to what? To evangelistic outreach among the unreached. No fixed home, terrible discomfort, walking for miles and miles, going um, on, on, on shipwrecked seas, you know, persecution, no big audiences to preach to, pers uh, and rejection in wherever they go. Normally you're supposed to progress as you grow older. Progress means promotion, higher salary, higher status, senior pastor, or uh, higher in the organizational chart, more comforts, larger audiences. This was progressing to discomfort. And then you notice that Antioch was asked to release the best for the unreached. That's how important missions is. Now let me say that this was a pattern that has gone on right through history. It happened in India. In the 70s, we saw a, a big thrust of missionary action from the south to the north of India. And, um, and the 75 to about 90 or 95, there was this huge thrust of capable, qualified people. Around 90, uh, 95, that began to get less and less. And uh, uh, I was talking to, I, I listened to a, a famous uh, Indian speaker explaining this. And he said that one of the major reasons why there has been a drop of professional people going into the mission field has been the concern for security, regarding their future, regarding their family, uh, you know, stability, financial stability. And, and so less and less people have been offering themselves for this work. My dear friends, the key to security and success in Christianity is doing God's will. When we do the will of God, it is not a sacrifice, as I said um, I think yesterday or day before yesterday. Well, our time is almost up, so I will quickly go on and say that as we look at uh, the sequence in chapters 12 to 15, we are told it's Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul in chapter 12 and 13. Then it becomes Paul and Barnabas. Um, it seems as if Paul had taken the leadership um, and... Uh, uh, and in chapter 13 and verse 13, it's just Paul and his company. So uh, Paul, uh, Paul is the one who's doing the speaking, even though Barnabas must have looked more distinguished. For example, when they go to Lystra, they call uh, Barnabas the chief god and Paul the, the spokesperson. And, um, and, um, and so, uh, but uh, it looks like Paul is the one who took the leadership job. And... Um, uh, Paul was, Barnabas must have been a distinguished looking person. He was probably older than Saul. Uh, whereas Paul was not good looking. We are told he was short. He was bow-legged. He had bad eyes. Uh, and he had a large forehead, they say. Uh, but he became the one who was the leader. There's a rhyme that says, 
It takes more grace that one can tell to play the second fiddle well. More grace is needed, but he was willing to do that. Very interestingly, uh, when they came back to uh, uh, Jerusalem, it becomes Barnabas and Saul again for the Jerusalem council because there it was Barnabas who was the respected leader. So Paul gave him this leadership slot and said, you take it and, and you do the, do the leadership. You know, um, and, and poor Barnabas had to, he was a good preacher, but he had to just sit and listen or stand and listen while Paul was doing the preaching. You know, some of us preachers are not very eager to listen to other preachers. An encourager is. I had a teacher, uh, Robert Coleman, who, uh, who was my, uh, he became like my father, spiritual father. He was my seminary teacher. And sometimes I would preach in seminary, and you know, se preaching in seminary is a scary thing. And he would tell me, I'll be there in the amen corner, <laughs> you know. And whenever I preached, somewhere there would be Dr. Coleman. And I, if ever I get nervous, all I've got to do is to look at his face and I see this beaming smile, and I'm encouraged to go on preaching. Uh, Dr. Dr. Coleman said, the glory of the teacher is to sit at the feet of the student and learn from him. That's the glory of the teacher. Well, um, later you, you noticed how they had a big fight over Mark, and uh, they separated, and then, but uh, later, Paul appreciated Mark, uh, and um, uh, the, the, the point I have is that uh, leaders often experience uh, disappointment, and, um, and, but Mark refused, uh, but Barnabas refused to give up on him. And you know the end. Mark ended up writing the second gospel, and probably he went to Egypt, and there he proclaimed uh, the gospel, and we are told, tradition tells us that he was killed in Egypt, but Egypt became one of the great centers of Christianity. So, uh, it could actually be said about Barnabas that the greatest thing about Barnabas was Paul and Mark, but what a legacy he left. The leader of uh, uh, the Lausanne movement was also the leader of a ministry called Life Ministries. His name is Doug Birdsall. And he uh, uh, says about the founder of Life Ministries, a ministry in Japan. He, uh, the founder was speaking to a young Japanese once. And he said, and he asked him, what is your vision? And the young Japanese gave what his vision was. And then the young Japanese asked the founder, and what is your vision? And this man said, my vision is to help you achieve your vision. The Ministry of Encouragement. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.